get full access to RFR only on Patreon. Become a member of the RFR Patreon community to get more Rebel Force Radio. Bonus shows and content are available right now only at patreon.com slash rebelforceradio. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. This is Rebel Force Radio. Your source for the Force. Star Wars news and commentary. With Jason Swank and Jimmy Mack. I've seen Star Wars 500 times. Star Wars number one. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. Now it's time for Rebel Force Radio. We would be honored if you would join us. Well, for those of you out there that were hoping for a return of virtual swank, sorry to disappoint. <laughs> you have fully realized swank this week. That's <laughs> how so you heard last week's show, huh? HD 3D, <laughs> the real thing, baby. Uh, is there any- I'm back. <laughs> Was this any threat to your job security? People want to know. No, but I, you know... I am wondering if if you just see me as some sort of uh, human laugh track. No, no, no. Hey, listen, listen. Let me let me tell you something. You know you know how it is in radio. You got you got the all right. Slow down. You got the two hosts, and then there's no, no. the one that's just the laugh track. Listen, you have one of the greatest laughs I've ever heard on a microphone. It invigorates, it energizes, and it makes everything in my world more funny. So you, go on, Puppet Lando. It's almost as if you are more important to the bit than Billy Mack at times. Because it's just great to... No, that's impossible. But, uh, well, you're definitely more important than I am to no. the bit. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, so, no, no, no. I, I re- No, it was hilarious. I, I was listening to it on, uh, on my commute in. And I'll tell you, I'm going to pay you the biggest compliment I can possibly pay to any... Uh, audio ah. entertainer, whether it be podcast, radio, right, or whatever, is that I stayed in the car in the parking garage to hear what you and Billy Mack were going to talk what about. What's going to happen next with me and Billy Mack? Yeah, wow, it's mm-hmm. almost like yeah. I, I no, truly, I I now understand what it's like to listen to Rebel. Well, Radio. actually, uh, take it a step further. Um, it's kind of like a pillow talk with me and Billy Mack because we did share a room as kids when we were in the height of our uh, Star Wars uh, youth passion. And uh, yeah. Star Wars pillow yeah, Star talk. Wars pillow yeah. talk. I could kind of imagine. Now, did you guys have the bunk we beds? We shared a room. Uh, no, we didn't have the uh-huh. bunk beds. But we did have these twin beds that were on other sides of the... Uh, like Wally yeah, and the Beast, exactly. With, with you know, with yeah. the little um, nightstand in between or what have you, and um, we had this closet with the double doors that would slide open, and that's where we stashed all of our Kenner Star Wars stuff: the vintage Death Star playset, the uh, Land of the Jawas, the Jawas Sandcrawler, the Moss Eisley Cantina. It was all in there on the floor of this closet. 
And so that's where we would have, that's where our Star Wars was. Our whole universe was in that closet. Since then, we have come out of the closet and now host a podcast. Yes. <laughs> but no, I mean, it was just like being there in the room with us. Sometimes I flash yeah. back to that when Bill is here in the studio with me. So it's nice to have him getting more involved in the show. I saw The Who last night. And The Who. The, 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 the Who. The Who. Yeah. The, I mean, the classic rock legends, The Who. And they're out there and they're touring. And... I thought we were going to do an Abbott and Costello. I know. I don't do that. I don't do that. I know. I knew where you were going with it. But listen, I'm very serious about my classic rock, okay? I know that. I'm I'm wearing the denim jacket. I have all of the the tour (laughs) pins on it. And my T-shirt is black as night. And my hand is lifted over my head. And the devil horns. Pinky and pointer finger. Mm. Let it rock. So we're at the Who last night. Pinky's up. And, um... I noticed that Pete Townsend is sharing the stage now with his brother, Simon. They've been touring together with The Who for like the last 20 years. You know, it's a big machine, The Who, when they take it out on the road. But if you notice, there's another guy up there playing guitar. In the old days with The Who, it was just Pete Townsend. Now it's Pete and his brother, Simon. Simon is 15 years younger than Pete. Billy Mack and I, we don't have that kind of age difference. But I like bringing in the brother. That, to me, mm-hmm. makes it all in the family. Well, I appreciate it, and the show is in excellent hands. And if you haven't listened, go and please check out Rebel Force Radio 4, May 17th, as uh, Billy Mack stepped in for me. I was in, uh, I was in the big city. I was in New York working uh, on the yes. day job, taking in a lot of Broadway shows, having a good time. I saw, my gosh, I think I saw six shows in five wow. days. Yeah, yeah, it's a rough life. It's a rough life. But uh, so if you're heading out to New York and you're wondering what you should see, I highly recommend Beetlejuice, the musical. I know what you're saying. You're saying, what? That's crazy. Beetlejuice. How do they make a musical out of that? Well, very well, I'll say. And if you're a fan of genre movies, then you probably have seen and love the classic 19, what, 88, yeah, 1988 film right. by Tim Burton. And uh, what, here, I'll tell you what's really great about it real quick is there's a lot of it's very, very trendy these days t- to do adaptations. It's taking musicals and turning them into movies and taking movies and turning them into musicals. And a lot of times it's a very, very literal translation. But with Beetlejuice, what I loved about it is that they took the characters and the situations and they kind of deconstructed it and then rebuilt it as a musical as opposed to just taking the, the screenplay of the film and just throwing some tunes in and calling it a musical. So it's, um, it's not for the little kids, I'll tell you that. I mean, it definitely keeps the, you know, the vibe of the Tim Burton film fully intact. Uh, but it's really, really good. And I think uh, folks that you know, listen to this show that are into that kind of thing would really, really like it. So uh, check that out. And um, the star of that, Alex Brightman, does a phenomenal job. He was the original uh, Dewey Finn in the School of Rock Broadway musical. So he's kind of got that Jack Black vibe. So imagine Jack Black meets Beetlejuice. <laughs> right on. Yeah. yeah, it was good. It was good stuff. Uh, also saw um, a, 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 a version of To Kill a Mockingbird. It's an Aaron Sorkin play starring um, Jeff Daniels. And I'd never seen Jeff Daniels uh, live, 
uh, acting. And I thought when I went in, I'm such a big Dumb and Dumber fan. I have to say, I went in there thinking that you know that's all I'm going to see is Harry from Dumb and Dumber. But you know, after the first second act, I was pretty okay. Good. It was it was good. So that's that's a really good show. You want to check that out and. Uh, so yeah, I had a good time. I had a good. I was trying to think if I had any kind of uh, Star Wars, if there was a Star Wars. Well, I'll tell you what. I I thought for a second that I might see Adam Driver while I was oh. out there. What? No, why? Why so, would you see uh, Adam out there? Does he live out there? Well, no, he doesn't live out there. He is. He's nominated for a Tony Award uh, right now for Burn. Oh, no this. kidding. So it's a play. It's a play on Broadway. And, um, you know, when I go to this conference, they, they bring out, as, as they sort of parade out all the people that are associated, you know, the creative teams behind all the, the big musicals and the big plays that are on Broadway for the season. Uh, they're really campaigning for Tony Awards. And uh, so I thought, wow, there's a, there's a good chance that maybe Adam Driver will show up to one of these things. And then, you know, we know as Star Wars fans that that's not, some that's not Adam's it's not thing. his speed Adam's it's not his speed he's not he doesn't like to go out and in politic and glad hand and meet the fans he and didn't all that. go to Star Wars and, celebrations know, any of them right? uh, I think he only appeared right at San Diego Comic-Con to promote the Force Awakens and that was the whole cast I mean my god you had Mark yeah. Carrie and Harrison on stage reunited. So, of course, Adam wanted to be a part of that. But he, to me, he seemed kind of uncomfortable there. Right, right. And he did the press junket for Last Jedi, I believe, the, the press event. Um, but, but you're right. None of the celebrations, uh, nothing where, you know, he, there was any chance. So, so I find it interesting, I, Jason, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But yes. I, I do find it no, interesting that immediately following the rap, of the Star Wars sequel trilogy, Adam doesn't go off to another film, but he splits and goes to Broadway to blow off some steam Mm -hmm. post, you know, I mean, that's a pretty hefty commitment of his life the last six years or so, but even longer if you consider auditions and everything. Adam's been very involved in Star Wars for quite a while now, and... I think that instead of going off to another film, you know, he's coming off of an Academy Award nomination. Mm-hmm. So he's pretty he's a pretty hot property in Hollywood. But despite that, he takes off from the big huge multi-million blockbuster sequel trilogy and his next project is hitting the stage in New York City. I think that's that it, says yeah. something. I think he's literally just that's what he's doing to let his hair down a little and blow off some steam after being committed to Star Wars for such a chunk of the past decade of his life, you know? Well, he's combining actually both two of these passions because we know he's he, he's a veteran. And so he has a nonprofit called Arts in the Armed Forces. And they take contemporary American plays and they go and they perform them for military audiences so that these these uh, men and women who are in the armed forces, they uh, you know, obviously can't make it to New York. Um, so they're taking the theater to the uh, to the soldiers. And, um, you know, that so his two passions. He 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 loves, obviously, and supports uh, the the veterans and, and the and the current um 
folks serving the armed forces and then also, of course, theater. That's his background. I mean, you know, I think he definitely comes across as that type of actor. And he's got the uh, he's got the credits mm-hmm. to his name. Um, that, that was really what sort of lured him. He got the acting bug yeah. through theater. But take advantage of the downtime. Many do. Between yeah. now and yeah. episode nine coming out. Take a little mm-hmm. advantage of that because he's going to have to go out and promote again. And uh, he will be there, uh, hopefully, on the uh, stage at 30 Rock and Saturday Night Live once again uh, to go out and promote the, the rise of Skywalker. I hope they bring him back to Saturday Night Live and we might get some great, great moments <laughs> from be- maybe uh, the return of Matt, the radar technician. or Yeah. <laughs> Now, a couple of years ago, um, I did get to see Lupita Nyong'o when she was in New York and she was talking about uh, Eclipsed, which is a play that she, uh, I think she, I can't remember, she won the Tony. She was definitely nominated uh, for the Tony Awards. So every once in a while, you get one of those uh, Star Wars connections in the theater world. And I thought maybe Adam Driver would be the one this year, but it was not to be. It was not to be. But I did uh, see some friends that saw him and burn this and said he was just absolute absolutely fantastic just incredible to see live so anyway all right well that that's me uh, there is one last thing that i that i do want to mention but before i get into that i think we should bring on our special guest you heard him giggling before and you know that laugh you know that laugh <laughs> he is the leader of the Gulliverse. he is the gala father if you will, the host of the Big Honkin' Show, the Geek Out Loud, incredible lineup of podcasts. Dylan Matt calls him Uncle Steve. He calls himself Junk Drawer, cousin of Rebel Force Radio. We just call him family. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Glosson joining us. I mean, back on Rebel Force Radio. I mean, guys, it's been uh, right now 14 minutes and 30 seconds since the show started, and I was trying to be polite the whole time. And uh, and why start now, Steve? <laughs> well, I, yeah, that's a, I'm sitting here kind of kicking myself. I'm like, well, I went out and started up the grill, grilled myself a steak or two, <laughs> had a meal, and now, hey, here I am, and um, here you are. That was I know that was a long intro. Your patience are appreciated and well noted. Then I well, here's the thing. I realized I'm just the laugh track for the show this week. Mm. Um, I like uh, virtual swank was last week. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And then I'm like, well, he's he's mentioning Jack Black. Now he'll bring me in the Jack Black of podcasts. You know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know what I was supposed to come in and do. You mentioned the Who and classic rock. I'm like, well, that's a perfect segue. But no, we're just hey, we kind of forgot fat wise over there. Uh, <laughs> hey. Never. We didn't hey, forget. I'm looking on. at the notes right here. <laughs> you, you, you take up like oh. the first. The first third of the notes on the hey, rundown buddy, I'll take this up, week. I take up more space than that. I'll tell you that right now. Um, I do want to say this as well. Two weeks ago, and, and Jason, I know you're a lot like me when it, mm-hmm. when it comes to the things we do, and, and, and you're doing these intros and stuff, and, and a lot of times you kind of forget, if you're like me, you kind of forget every little thing that you say. You know, so someone might come along and say, hey, that thing you said was so true and funny. You're like, what thing? <laughs> oh. And they tell you, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's great. Well, two weeks ago during the intro, you said this. You said, "Oh God, this the show that will get off track, and we do a better job of getting off track than any other podcast." <laughs> if I was a beer drinker, I would have been like, "Hold my beer." Um, <laughs> I'm like, I, I feel like I am the king of just getting off track. I do a two-hour radio show every week for a 
for a local station down in Brunswick, Georgia. And I sit down with uh, stacks and stacks of stuff to go over. Mm-hmm. And about an hour and a half in, I'm like, all right, let's get to our first <laughs> news story today. <laughs> well, that, that's how, you know, what, the 14-minute uh, prelude before we brought you on. That's how, that's how it goes. I mean... I think, you know, look, when you're passionate about what you're getting ready to talk about, whether it's Mm -hmm. daily or weekly or monthly, whatever it is, um, you know, who needs show notes? I mean, they're there just to kind of be a little safety net to catch you, but... You know that does. We don't need a script. We don't need a rundown. You could just turn the microphone. Script? No, no. But as I was uh, perusing the Amazon, I did notice that uh, Amazon now features a brand new documentary called Laddie, the Man Behind the Movies. It's finally available to online for people to watch, and none other but Jimmy Mack. His voice can be heard. In this documentary, and this is something, Jim, hey, that hey, rang hey, a hey, distant hey, bell. Hey, what? Hey, hey, what? I'm there too. Oh well, come on! This is I'm, this is why the you know, very opening. It's more than just me, actually. It's quite honestly, this is one of those weeks. Like last week, Jason, you were unavailable uh-huh. because you were sitting through all of those uh, lavish show productions. And um, yeah, lavish Broadway yes. musicals. I'm not afraid and, to say um, it. And so Billy Mac sat in, but. Um, before he uh, tied the knot, Big Steve Glosson was my main go-to. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> that's a true. And then story. he married Yoko. He knows. Oh, watch out now. Haley Glosson is a saint. She is. Haley Glosson <laughs> is a saint. That's just what John Lennon said about Yoko. <laughs> you know, Steve hasn't been on the show with us for a while, and I'm so glad she doesn't listen yeah. to your show. Oh, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. First, Jonathan Wilkins has a baby, and now Steve gets married. What's next? I would be in so much trouble. <laughs> oh, I heard, I heard you say the bloom's going to be off that rose. I didn't. <laughs> Now, my response to it, I will not admit out loud. (laughs) All right. Well, you know, hey, look, I've been married. I'll be married 20 years in the fall. Mm. 20 years. So I know what it's all about. So Billy Mac sat in last week for you, Jason. Uh, Big Steve was sitting in. uh, This is, I think, three years ago. Maybe even it's been a while. Further back. Yeah. Listen, this documentary—it's it's, it's been more than I was still in. I was still in South Georgia, right? When we I, had I think discussion. this could have been five years ago when me and Steve mm-hmm. Glosson were having a conversation on Rebel Force Radio about the great Ellen Ladd Jr., the man who gave the green light to Star Wars, and the studio head and producer behind many iconic films, and so um, his daughter Amanda Ladd has had this documentary about her father in the works for quite a while. I've known about it because um, they reached out to me after hearing me and Steve talk about Alan Ladd Jr. So Amanda heard us talking about Alan Ladd Jr. and reached out to me and asked if uh, she can use the soundbite for placement somewhere within the documentary. Now, like I said, this was Five years ago, at least, I quite honestly had forgotten about this project and thought maybe it was just one of those things that went belly up due to lack of funding, what have you. But I was so happy to see it launch earlier 
uh, what, last month, I think, it started showing up on some streaming services. And this is a story about Alan Ladd Jr., who is one of the more quiet, more unassuming Hollywood power brokers from the 70s and the 80s. But he is a major contributor to such films, like I said, you know, Star Wars, of course. He is the one who believed in George Lucas, like the only one who believed in George Lucas. So many people, so many studio heads turned so it many. down. Said they didn't want to even hear George about had it. to go back to the studio for more money because he couldn't complete special effect shots. Alan Ladd Jr., he stood in front of a freight train. These old school Hollywood execs who didn't understand anything and were against funding Lucas's project to begin with. And now George is coming back saying he needs more money. But that's how backward ass these studio execs were thinking. Alan Ladd Jr. was way outside the box and recognized George Lucas's genius, realized the potential behind the project. Not only Star Wars, Blade Runner, Chariots of Fire, Police Academy. Yes, Police Academy, Steve yes. Gutenberg. Yes. Alien. The Omen. The very Brady sequel. And the very Brady sequel. And that's the funniest thing that you say that, Steve. Because, Jason, <laughs> I, I know you haven't watched the documentary yet, and I strongly recommend you do, and I recommend everyone. No, I just added it. By the way, you can, you can add it to your watch list uh, on Amazon. So uh, Yes, and, and Amanda Ladd did an amazing job. It's a she fan, stuck yes, with this project for yeah. so long. Like I said, it was years ago when I first started hearing about this. And I never thought it would see the light of day. And then all of a sudden, there it was. And so uh, let's hear the very beginning. This is the first thing you hear when you press play. Laddie, the man behind the movies. This is the first 30 seconds of the documentary. This is Rebel Force Radio. The name Alan Ladd Jr., what does that mean to you, Steve Glosson? It's a name that's... Well, he was the producer of a very Brady sequel. <laughs> uh, Alan Ladd Jr., of course, he, he, very key to Star Wars. Whether fans realize it or not, this is the man who said yes. Sounds a little Harry Nilsson. So, so let, me, let me just get this straight here on one second. Yeah. So I miss recording an episode of Rebel Force Radio, and it happens to be the week that you decide to talk about Alan Ladd. And now it's Steve that gets his first IMDb credit. Even and better. <laughs> Even as, better. As Steve Filoni has famously said time and time again, eh, nothing ever cool happens when Swank's around. <laughs> well, it is true. What I, what I love about it, though, Jason, just to your yeah. point, mm -hmm. is that even Jimmy Mac gets one sentence in, and I'm like, I'll run it with this. It does become more about open this whole because I even say your name. I name check you there. <laughs> that's, that's right. Thank God the Rebel that's Force right. radio bumper is at the very beginning of it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we don't have a leg to stand on here, Jason. It's all about that's Steve Glass. Oh, not at all. It's in a Gulliver's thing. You, if you look, Laddie, the man behind the movies, was almost called Laddie, the man who said yes. <laughs> the man who said yes. And there's Swank. I knew it was going to come. I knew the Southern draw was going to come out sooner or later. 
Look, I showed I showed my wife that I was so. I, you mentioned it at the live event, Jimmy, I, and and I heard that on the podcast, and I'm like, wow, I was on there with that. That's crazy. So I found it where where I could stream it, and I was watching it, and I was so just kind of blown away. Like it really is kind of a mind blowing thing, and and I showed my wife, and the first thing she looks at me and says, oh, would you get money off of that? <laughs> oh yes. That's yes. Welcome to marriage. Welcome to podcasting. Welcome to marriage. Welcome to podcasting. <laughs> right, Jason yeah, right. is what you mean. Yeah. Welcome to podcasting as a married man. You say no. I didn't get a dime. I got notoriety. <laughs> That's right. I exactly. The doors are going to be beaten yeah. down pretty yes. soon. <laughs> One of these days. Oh, truly. How cool is that? I mean, what a great way to set up the documentary. I mean, uh, I can't wait to watch. It's in my queue. I'm going to watch it this weekend. It, it, it looks. It looks great, and to have your voices be the first thing that people hear when they uh, when they stream it, that's that's very cool. Yes. And for it to be directed by his daughter, yes. Amanda, um, and it is interesting. It's one of those things, Jim, that you kind of put out of your head, and then all of a sudden it comes back, you know, five yeah, years later. So true, so true. Amanda Ladd-Jones, a passion project for her, obviously. She's a filmmaker in her own right. And when you are a filmmaker and a writer, the things you want to do is go after something you know very well and you're very passionately involved with. What greater subject matter than your own father, especially someone like Alan Ladd Jr., who uh, kicked some serious butt and made sure that those stuffed shirts sitting there at the studio boardroom, they understood the potential and the power of George Lucas's vision, the man who greased those skids and opened up that door for George after he had been turned away from just about every other film studio in Hollywood, Alan Ladd Jr. made Star Wars happen. At least it wouldn't have been the same Star Wars that we saw. And George is in the documentary, right? Yes, absolutely. And here's a clip. What I didn't know was that there was this whole behind-the-scenes battle going on between Laddie and the board. Because at that point, the board had kind of taken over the company. You know, Laddie had been moved up into a position, but he was basically not reporting directly to the board, and they were actually making decisions about movies. And they were giving him a bad time, and they didn't understand the movie, and they thought it was ridiculous. I mean, it was a crazy movie. You know, again, it's like this furry dog driving a spaceship. I mean, what is that? They had basically said, don't you dare come back here to the board and say that film is still shooting. I had a lot of problems, you know, and I was right up against the gun. So he didn't say, look, I've got problems too. You've got to help me with my problems, and I'm sorry I have to. He just said, look, I'm invested in you. I'm not invested in the movie, and I'm trusting you to whatever you do. And so he gave me the extra money to finish the movie. So we did. We put on a whole bunch of crews. We shot real fast. We did a lot of things. It cost a lot of money. And he never really told me what was going on in those board meetings. And it was much rougher than anybody had ever said to anybody. So Laddie was really on the hot seat on that movie until the day it came out. But we knew we had something. Yes, Laddie, the man behind the movie. And he's still with us. He's still with us. He's yeah. 81 years old. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's very cool. And um, I'm looking at it right now on Amazon. Uh, uh, Jim, you mentioned it was on Hulu. So it's, it's, it's I guess it's hitting all of the big streaming services. And the first thing you hear is me and Big Steve Gloss. Let's hear that one more time. I want to I ride this train. 
This is Rebel Force Radio. The name Alan Ladd Jr., what does that mean to you, Steve Glosson? It's a name that's, well, he was the producer of a very Brady sequel. <laughs> Uh, Alan Ladd Jr., of course, very key to Star Wars. Whether fans realize or not, this is the man who said yes. And then it gets all serious with the bass. Very documentary. (laughs) That's a cool bass. Like I said, it reminds me of Jumping into the Fire by Harry Nilsson. Very much that bass line. (laughs) Uh, Harry Nilsson. The Phantom Menace is by far the best Star Wars movie. It ages well. That's the thing. Hey, you know what, guys? This is actually kind of a big week uh, in Star Wars history. Uh, this week marks 20 years of the fan. Yes. And oh, it's, yes. This, is, this is huge. And, and uh, Jim, you and I, we, we spoke very nostalgically about the Phantom Menace. We saw the, the, the panel. We participated. We were there in Chicago, a celebration for the 20th anniversary panel hosted by Warwick Davis. Um, and so we've been able to recount our sort of our Phantom Menace memories, but uh, I don't know that Steve has ever shared them here on Rebel Force Radio. So, Steve, take us back 20 years ago. Hmm. Where were you as the Phantom Menace was wow. getting ready to... Roll out on the screens. 20, 20 years ago, 1999, I had just finished up a semester, the last semester I would ever do of college um, in, in Virginia. But I was still planning on living around there, I think. But I had come to North Georgia to do an internship for the summer. And, and so I'd already made it to North Georgia um, by the time... Phantom Menace was released. And now, when he I, says made it, you got to picture Steve with like one of those sticks over his shoulder with the little <laughs> bag at the end. Hey, might that's as, what I'm. That's what I'm picturing. Might, <laughs> might as well have been. I was in a. Uh, I was in. What was I in at that time? I, I, I was in the Oldsmobile by that point. I was in a, okay. just the old uh, 89, 88, and eighty nine Delta Roy. Somebody's like, I made it to North Georgia. <laughs> I made it. What a, okay. <laughs> you want, I'll, all right, Swing. I'll lay it on for you. <laughs> I, <laughs> no, I, what I mean is, as a college yes. kid, I, you know, I was there and starting up that internship, but I had some friends back in Virginia who were like, you need to come up that weekend and we'll all go see it then, mm. uh, but not before. And I'm like, okay. So I didn't go on opening night to The Phantom Menace oh. because, I, because I'd made a movie promise to my friends. Um ah. And so I get up to Virginia, and we had a group of 12 or 15 of us who were going to go that, I guess it would have been the Friday night. I guess it opened on a Wednesday. Yes, yeah. May no, are, these, are these your college friends, or are these your These are your college these are they, friends. They, they these are college on friends. Yes. People, yeah, yeah. These, are, these are people that had become through college like yes. family to me. Gotcha. And right. so um, and we had gone and done the special editions oh, together a couple of years perfect. earlier, you yep, know, that yep. sort of thing. And so I get, so the plan was to go with a bunch of us on Friday night. I get to town that Thursday afternoon, and I call my buddy up. I'm like, "Hey, I'm at town. I'm over at the apartment." He's like, "Great." And I and he says, "Okay, you want to get together for supper?" And I'm like, "Sure, let's do that." Well, I, I hang up the phone, and this is before the days of cell phones, ladies and gentlemen. Or they they were just coming into being accessible, and no, we did not have just them sm- smoke signals. And, um, I was using a lot of that. That's right. 
I hang up the phone, and immediately he calls me back, and he's like, you're in town. Why aren't we going to Yes. And so we make our way to this theater in Lynchburg, Virginia, and we are able to get tickets. Um, and, and, and look, we saw the movie. I loved the movie. I, it's the only time in my life I hated previews. <laughs> it was just like, come on, I get to the movie. Every time I go to a movie. After, you oh, I love pre- previews. I love a previews good... guy. Oh, yeah. You're I'm a, a previews, previews guy. guy. Yeah. No, I've yeah. never met I one. Like them better than com- I like them better than commercials. Well, they, um, they, they flood the previews with commercials yeah. now, though. It's I know. I know. So when we left, we went to go grab a bite at a McDonald's where I had been working before I moved before I left to go down to North Georgia and um to see some people there and we're standing there waiting on food and we pull out straws and we're doing we're now listen we're 22 right. years old you know we're in our early and we're there waiting on food with straws doing lightsaber <laughs> um yeah yeah it's like i mean when anakin does that move in the pod race where he goes up the exit oh, ramp yes. and and he jumps over Sebulba. Mm. I audibly in the theater I went yes and I'm like oh my gosh I'm really nice. into this um, <laughs> I I just absolutely loved the Phantom Menace and I and I never stopped like I never looked back and um, I and I can say that with all conviction and all sincerity that that, that is a movie that to this day I, I love I, I get what George Lucas was doing I I thrill to it every time. It does have one of the best lights. I I I prefer Obi Wan and Anakin's battle from Revenge of the Sith as far as being the best. But man, Maul versus Qui Gon and Obi Wan is right there as far as great I, lightsaber know, battles go. I to me, put my, myself, I put the Vader Luke Cloud City duel at the top. But on like as far as sheer acrobatics and crazy stuff like that, if I'm really gonna like strip myself of my original trilogy fan purity and actually let myself allow something outside of the original trilogy to take number one in some sort of list, then it's going to be the Phantom Menace duel, Obi Wan, mm. Qui Gon, Darth Maul. There's more martial artistry happening there. Mm-hmm. And I think of obviously with the well, inclusion of Ray Park, who was a world class yeah. martial artist, having him there to me elevates that saber duel above any other. Above any mm-hmm. and other. That's, and that's kind of what I'm coming from from a story standpoint, you know, yeah, give me Cloud City or give me Death Star Two. But from what you're talking about, just the action and just the surfacey aspects, what I love about Revenge of the Sith's duel over uh, over Phantom Menace is just how George was throwing everything in there. Like it was, it was just let them do it all. They do everything from swing on wires to jump to doing flips to to hand to hand combat stuff in the middle yeah, of that but thing. You know what? It, so it feels kind of CG to me. Compared to Phantom mm. Menace, which feels a little more real to me. Now, I know if you slow down, mm-hmm. go frame by frame, you'll clearly see Ray kicking up toward the stunt guy who's standing in there for Ewan McGregor or Liam Neeson. And he clearly does not connect with the guy and stuff. And 
some of that. I, I mean, they had the disposal of digital editing at their fingertips where they could mm-hmm. have fixed all that stuff, and they never did. Because I even think George Lucas himself wanted to represent what he was seeing there on the set and mm-hmm. maintain that integrity. It's like when you watch old martial arts films. There's a lot of guys yep. they'll take a beating and they get knocked out, but you know it's like eh, that staff never made any contact with them, but the moves that went into all of that was really, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. there, it was awesome and amazing display of martial art integrity. And that's what... Yeah, it was like pro wrestling. Well, yes, yes, of yes. course, absolutely. Yes. And that, that choreographed the, the maneuvers, it, it's it, the amount of skill and precision and training and discipline that goes behind that. Now, mm-hmm. Obi-Wan versus Anakin in Ep3, to me, feels more like an animated event you know it does i hmm. like the drama in it more between the real actors right. than the actual flash and awe and spectacle of the the saber duel yeah. i like the dramatic moments in there what i love the most about empire strikes back vader versus luke is the drama is very heavy in it but it also t- it, it carries oh, yeah. you through all these different environments you follow these yes. guys yes. you know you yeah. go through cloud city with them you really and i get that also from the phantom menace tool and i also get that mm-hmm. of course from ep3 but when i put them all up there it's like to me the drama of empire elevates it mm-hmm. The martial artistry integrity of the Phantom Menace elevates it. And, of course, the saber duel between Anakin and Obi-Wan that we've been hearing about with the lava and all of that stuff coming to reality. Mm -hmm. The origin of Darth Vader, that's something that elevates that duel. So those are your top three. And to me, you can put them on, you know, you can juggle them and just juggle them forever. Mm -hmm. There's never a number one necessarily. Yeah, well, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I, you know, what I came away with was I began to be surprised at the vitriol that that ended up being thrown at the Phantom Menace because I just I couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand what was wrong with this thing, you know, because what I saw were all of these mysteries beginning to unfold in a time when there should have really been no mystery. You know, we know where Anakin is headed. We know all this stuff, but but but. Lucas was able to pull back the camera from this small, intimate story between uh, basically a father and a son from the original trilogy to this galactic tale that is that that revolves around the the rise of the dark side and the the fall of Anakin Skywalker, and it's such a huge, big story that begins to narrow down as you go through that prequel trilogy. And just with the Phantom Menace, I just remember my mind being blown. All the new aliens intermixed with old aliens, you know, all of the the, the familiarity of Tatooine, yet it's not oh, Mos yes. Eisley, it's Mos yes. Espa, and it's a new place. It's a it's it's the same, but it's different. How about different, when the you know? ship lands and, on Tatooine and they walk into Mos Espa, you, and you see the do-bags and familiar yes, with new... Yes. And it was your eyes are darting all over every frame, and you're just like, "Yep, oh, we're back home. We are back home yeah. in Star Wars here, yeah. and it's Tatooine." And so it made you know, and so you're able to then process Naboo, you know, and like, "Oh, this is something completely right. new and different. It feels very Earth-like, but it's still very alien." And and everywhere you looked, there was it felt alien even though it was like earth and then you get to coruscant and it's like 
the only thing I'd ever really known about Coruscant was was the first time I ever heard or read the word or saw the word was in the yep. Timothy Zahn Heir novel, to the Empire. several years yep. before. And and I was just like, this is amazing. They did a whole city. And the, the planet is a whole city, and it's this this incredible thing. And there's General Zod, and he's the president, and that's great. And <laughs> and um and it was just it was just this to me. It was this great experience. Um, it was back to the universe. It was well. How how is this going to play out? Oh my gosh, that's Palpatine. Does everyone else know what I know? You know, do they, do they know that he's really pulling the strings? And Weren't just, you surprised at how many people didn't know? Yes, 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 yes. That was a big one. And but they did such a good job of. There was one place where he kind of gives a look. And it's and it's bad acting, uh, and I feel like no. it's intentional bad acting. Where he said, "Not no, no you're I don't talking about this scene. You're doing talking bad about this scene. I can. I, I, you're telegraphing it because I know where you're going. You're talking about the scene when Padme storms out of his office, and she's yes. going to head back. No, and your he Majesty puts up a false defense, like no, you, my lady, yes. you can't leave. Right, and she leaves. And your Majesty, the treaty. If, if, yeah, the, no, your Majesty, stay here where it's safe. And it's like it's like that is Palpatine acting. That is that exit is, that, stage left. You know that is it's it's Ian McDermott intentionally putting oh, on that aspect. That's so mm-hmm. insightful of you to bring that up because nobody else ever understood what I was talking about when I brought this up to him. There is almost the slightest of side smirks from Palpatine, mm-hmm. and you oh, know, yeah. d- does he look yeah. into the camera at that moment like? He, he almost does. Does. Yes. almost almost but he gets that little glint and that half smile that he's able to do when she walks out you of the You have to room. have the insight of yeah, someone who's really connected yeah. and understands that he's the one he's the puppet master. I was mm-hmm. surprised some guys I knew who claimed to be the biggest Star Wars fans in the world, and they would talk to me about all this Zen Buddhism that was going on with Jedi and all this stuff, and I was like, holy crap, you guys, you know so much. Wait a second. You didn't know that Palpatine is the <laughs> Emperor? You didn't know that there's a duality? That you didn't. He's, play, he's playing both of You didn't know? I said, go watch the movie again. And then we'll talk. Yes, and and when yep. you hear when you hear Ian McDiarmid talk about the discussions he had with George Lucas that Palpatine is the mask. Senator mm-hmm. Palpatine is the mask. Mm, yeah, that he wears. Yeah, that, I've, that's interesting. That covers the well, emperor. Look, go go to the scene in the Phantom Menace where he's in the Senate with Padme, and she's getting ready to call for the vote of no confidence. She she's not on board with calling for the vote of no confidence yet. But the minute he starts, will you defer your motion to a committee? You know, he's like, this is it. He's there whispering in her ear. He's like, this is where his resolve will fail. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where you're going to see the bureaucrats step in and mess things up. And 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 that little whisper, that little nudge is he's like, we don't have time to decide things in a committee. Nah, my people are dying. I call for a vote of no confidence, you know? Yeah, he's almost he's, using the Jedi mind oh, trick he on sure her is. in yeah. a way. A different chancellor, a stronger <laughs> chancellor. And he almost drops down into the Palpatine uh, Yeah, he voice. does. And yeah. another thing that you, you have to wonder is like, wait a second. All these senators are acting just like you said they would. 
how many seeds has this guy been planning for how many years? I mean, he has been seeing this through and he has twisted all of these minds there in the Senate rotunda. And how much mind control is he actually employing there as well? Well, mass mind control. You know, that's I, I think he's just a shrewd manipulator. I think that he is I think he is riding the wave of the dark side to manipulate but I think Jason's talking strictly about mind control. The Obi-Wan I Kenobi, don't, I don't you will let us... You don't yeah. need to see his identification. He is, I mean, it is, it's brought up in several of the Legends books around that so, time. Because in particular Plagueis. The Force has uh, that effect on the weak-minded, and you have to assume anyone who rose to the rank of senator for their selected star system would have to be someone who does not qualify as weak-minded. Maybe some of them, yeah, of course, politicians being politicians, he would find them and pick them apart, but I don't think he could just do this mass cloud of confusion on people. I, You know, no, I think I he think, had to, he had to do just a lot a, of work. He had to plant a lot of seeds. Yeah, he's... I, he's, I agree. I, I think I he's just a master manipulator, puppet master that, yes. that has... Like I say, I think he is... I think he's used the force to, to find his ins and outs... You know mm-hmm. of things, but I don't. I don't think he's he's using intentional mind control. The other thing that really struck home to me about the Phantom Menace, is, and it's something that I don't know that any other filmmaker would have chosen to do uh, with the character of Anakin Skywalker, and that is give us someone who is completely, pretty much completely innocent. Yeah. I I know that when in the novelization, you know, he gets mad at Baby Greedo and and beats the snot out of him. But in the movie, what we see is this just it is a is a child very much like Luke as a teenager. He's looking off to the horizon. He has dreams. He, you know, he he's doing mm-hmm. things. He's he's he longs for adventure and stuff. But there's an innocence there, and and I think what people wanted was a little boy. If we're going to get a little boy who was secretly pulling the arms off of lizards, you know, when Qui-Gon wasn't looking and who was burning anthills with, with a magnifying glass and blowing up his toys, you know, not someone who created a little Jeffrey Dahmer. Right. That's what I think that's what they wanted to see. But instead what we get is this, is this innocent. It's not that easy. It's complicated. Exactly. The whole idea of evil is if you're not careful, it can overtake you. Yeah. And, And I think that a lot of people had to look in, you know, in, in the in the face of innocence, realizing that this is going to become evil. And I don't think people were very comfortable with that. I loved it. I thought it was a genius uh, play by George Lucas to to tell the story of that kid. What do you think about like some of these things I've been seeing over the course of the last week as it's become trendy for bloggers and websites to write pieces reflecting on 20 years of The Phantom Menace. One of the oddest things that I've noticed has picked up a little bit of steam online over the course of the last few weeks is this complaint, this criticism of Episode One and the prequel trilogy in general by saying that there's no specific protagonist in the film. The film starts off with... um, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, and it leads you to Anakin. Who is the protagonist of Episode One? I think it's pretty clear. I think it's uh, Qui-Gon Jinn. Of course it is. Is the protagonist. Look, that's something that was brought up several, several years ago in this freaking three-hour 
slash piece done by Red oh, Letter yeah, I Media. I never watched it. I never, um, and that thing I, has been popping up in the feeds too, as people yeah, are celebrating see, 20 years of the Phantom Menace. It, it's like all of a sudden I'm reminded of this Red mm-hmm. Letter Media video that I still to this day have not watched a single yeah. frame of I, that thing. I watched. I watched a few minutes of it back then because someone said, hey, let me get your take on this. And I heard the guy's voice, and I listened to him for a few minutes. I'm like, oh, this is ridiculous. This is this oh. is just, this is trite. And and he makes that whole protagonist. There's no protagonist. The protagonist is Qui-Gon Jinn. Qui-Gon is the one who is fighting for the light. Qui-Gon is the one who is following the will of the Force. Qui-Gon is the one protecting the queen, uh, trying to bring freedom back to Naboo. Qui-Gon Jinn is well, the protagonist. Well, you know, here's how I sum it up myself. And, and I, I think I've been pretty consistent on this standpoint for 20 years, is that the Phantom Menace is, yes, told through the eyes of Qui-Gon Jinn. But he's not necessarily the protagonist. Neither is Anakin Skywalker. Neither is Padme Amidala. And this ridiculous notion that is Jar Jar Binks. Shut up. All right, that's coming from the same people who brought you Darth Jar Jar. Come on. I don't even humor that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's fun, whatever. Have fun. And not, you know, get, you know, get off my yard, right? So, but I believe the protagonist of The Phantom Menace is the situation. The situation itself is the protagonist, based on what we know from the original trilogy. We have all we need to know. We know what the situation is. Show us how it unfolds. And then, as Lucas famously does, the dominoes fall appropriately, and you get the baton being handed off from the Jedi to Anakin to Padme. To even Jar Jar, yeah, I'll give him his time in the sun. Fine. But also, the main thread that runs through it all is the mastermind behind the situation, and that is Palpatine. The Emperor, Senator Palpatine, Chancellor Palpatine, Emperor Palpatine, the Emperor, Darth Sidious. How are they going to tie this all up in Ep 9? That is the most important Mm. thing. Thank God they've revealed it to us that he is going to be there in the final chapter because it's so necessary. Because he is the situation. Qui-Gon Jinn is the situation. Hmm. Anakin Skywalker is the situation. Padme Amidala is the situation. It's all... I just keep thinking of the guy from the Jersey Shore, isn't that's that? What, yeah, you keep saying oh, situation. Come on. I didn't like... watch that stuff. I'm not referencing any stupid MTV <laughs> reality series that you guys slobbered all over 15 years ago. I've never seen a minute of it. 15 years ago. He's got washboard abs. That's all I know. I've never seen a minute of it. Never seen a minute of it. Unfocused Star Wars conversation I've ever had (laughs) from Broadway to the Jersey. But wait a minute, though. Hold on. Wait, hold on. I'm going to push back on you. I'm going to push back on you a little bit. Let's talk Star Wars. And say you can't have the the situation be the protagonist. Yes. No, not the situation. That doesn't work that way. That's like saying the plot is the protagonist. That's not that. Yeah, that doesn't work. There's a protagonist is a singular character nothing. or, okay, or, or I'll force. Give you proof. I'll give you proof. Everyone is talking about why Star Wars is failing in the Chinese market where Marvel thrives and Fast and Furious thrives. But why does the Star Wars franchise, the king of all franchises, 
fail in the Chinese market. I'll tell you why. It's because they never released the original trilogy. It never had a proper film release mm-hmm. in China. So you don't have that core. You don't have that baseline. You don't have that situation that makes the Phantom Menace work. You don't have that. That's what well, fuels I, wait, I, everything. I, I Well, see, I don't know about that because I have watched... I've been fortunate enough to have a, two or three people in my life who never watched a Star Wars. <laughs> And, and 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 I would sit and I'm very much because I, I if if I have if there's Star Wars worship in my life I worship at the altar of George Lucas I've made that I've made that very clear in my life and so I know that George says are you watching one two three four five six? yeah that no. is how he would mm-hmm. prefer it. yes and so so I show people hmm. that way and and it's amazing to me what people get out of watching the phantom menace and and what i do they're like now wait a minute now, i know this who where's luke skywalker i'm like he's not born yet i answer basic questions but i don't get into the details i don't i'm like here's the yellow letters read those that's what you know go and to watch those people my wife was like the minute phantom menace over she's like well i don't trust that old man and i'm like mm. what old man she was talking about palpatine she's like he's cra- he's Lassie. he's shifting yes. i don't trust him Mm-hmm. And and she and she was picking. She's like, I love baby Anakin, and she's like, and and I'm like, oh well, this is going to be bad, <laughs> you know. And 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 it's just she's like, Jar Jar was funny. He was cute. He was a little annoying, but he was cute. I can see where kids would like him. And there's just this uh, attachment people get to different things that just kind of surprise me, you know. Meanwhile, we're cheering at R two D two, ma'am. You know, I'm like, oh my gosh, he said R two D two, you know. Um, it, but for for a fresh for a fresh set of eyes, it's an interesting story. It doesn't. I don't think it captures their heart the way that the original trilogy captured ours, but it's enough to make them want to continue on, and 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 it does actually stand on its own, you know. And and most of the conversations I've ever had with people don't get into the taxation of trade routes or the <laughs> politics of the galaxy. That's something that the people trying to be the smartest person in the room bring up and like, oh, that's what movie kids want to watch. That's what they want to see. Hey, I want to see a movie about taxation. It's trade not, routes. a that's movie's what, not you know, about that. That's just exactly. part of the situation. Exactly, but people... <laughs> you in the situation. But people don't have that discussion when they watch it generally. They talk about Darth Maul. They talk about the balance of the Force. They talk about the Jedi. They talk about what's going to happen to this kid. They talk about how much they love Qui-Gon Jinn. So the only way I would turn Qui-Gon Jinn being the protagonist on its head, now let me come back around to what I was saying, And not, because the situation cannot be, by the definition of a story, cannot be the oh, protagonist. Oh, sure it can be. Look at <laughs> life. If the Look plot, at life in general. What is the protagonist in most situations? The situation. You're the pro, you're the protagonist of your own story. If but if the if the plot, the overarching plot of the the prequel trilogy is the rise of the dark side, then the protagonist of the Phantom Menace is the Phantom Menace. Palpatine. The situation. Mm-hmm. But if Darth you're, if situation. You're, if you're... <laughs> he is Darth situation. Darth Situatious. That's how Lucas came up with Sidious. Let's see, Darth Situation. He's a situation. Darth Situation. Sidious. Yes. I got it. Call Hasbro. The hero is the plot, man. 
It's the hey, plot. Hey, settle down. Settle down now. <laughs> but so you know what kind of um, made me more accepting of the Phantom Menace than I think most of the casual film goers who filled up the office building surrounding me and, you know, all my friends and everything is the fact that I had been religiously following the expanded universe leading up to the Phantom Menace release. Now, granted, the expanded universe really got his jump start in 1991 with the Timothy Zahn launch of uh, Heir to the Empire of the Thrawn trilogy. And then the novel started hitting at a more rapid pace about two or three years in. By the mid-90s, we were getting several novels a year. And the first thing I did when I ever signed on to the Internet, the first time I ever sat down in front of a computer in 1994, and logged on into the internet, the first thing I looked up was Star Wars novel release dates. And Mm. I had this complete list of the next five years leading up to 1999 in The Phantom Menace. All of these books that were committed, everything from novels by guys like Timothy Zahn, Kevin J. Anderson, even the the young adult novels, all of that stuff was on this list. I still have that list somewhere. That was the first thing I ever did when I, I signed online. So now you have the internet and you're rolling into The Phantom Menace and you have all these books coming out and the comics, Dark Horse, was really starting to kick it in. And it was a lot of stories about the original trilogy and then around 1998, when Dark Horse started to release, the, they had a prequel to the prequel, which was oddly focused on Ki-Adi Mundi. So I thought this guy was going to be a huge player, you know, in the film. <laughs> uh, much like Rick Oley, because he was on, like, the very first trading card that was ever released. Oh, yeah. It was one of the very first images we saw was Rick Oley sitting in the cockpit of the Naboo Cruiser. That little droid did it! This guy's a player here. I mean, this guy, he was like, could be another scruffy nerf herder like Han Solo. You catch on pretty fast. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he just, yeah. The hyperdrive is leaking. (laughs) Yes, yes, male pattern baldness in the Star Wars galaxy. Coruscant, the entire planet is one big city. And look, there's Chancellor Valorum ready to welcome us. You catch on pretty quick. Thanks, Rick Lee. <laughs> that droid did it. <laughs> that little droid did it. Oh, no, come on. That's a little over the top for uh, Rick Lee, Steve. Dial it down. Yeah. Dial it down. I'm sorry. That yeah, little right, droid did right, it. Right. You catch on pretty fast. <laughs> He kind of gets those big bug eyes when he says that. That little droid did it. Exactly. I think that's why my voice went up so much. <laughs> you can't take a majesty there. Oh, no, that's Panaka. Uh, that is Panaka. Panaka. That is Panaka. <laughs> All right. Okay. Wait a minute. We've, uh, we've been dwelling in the past. Let's, let's, let's move on because we've got this great Vanity Fair cover story that is detailing all right, I have two things to say Episode real quick before we jump the- into it. I'm sorry, Jason, but I do. All right. Uh, you weren't here last week, so Go I got to clean it. up some. I, I made some messes last week. I got to clean up. Oh, I heard. Wait a minute. I heard that you did not consider Godzilla a franchise. No, no. Oh, come on, I, Jimmy Mack. You Mac. know what? 
That's what I heard. I mean, Godzilla, I mean, it's one of the longest-running franchises no, in, no, in, in movie history. It. Longer than Bond. It goes back to the Slow 30s. Down. Longer than Bond. Slow down, Dale Earnhardt. I don't think it goes back to the 30s, <laughs> Listen, does it? No, well, no, sure, no. The, the, the Harryhausen Godzilla. That, that, I don't Oh, that's I King Kong. Sorry. I don't think there's such a thing. Clear my conscience here. <laughs> I, need this, I, need, I need to have a cathartic moment here because I really screwed up last week. I said that the Gareth Edwards 2014 Godzilla was supposed to launch a franchise of films, and it really didn't do it because it was not well accepted or whatever, I said. Well, what's happening this summer? Yes, there is a new Godzilla movie coming out. Billy Mack brought it up, but I didn't realize it was connected necessarily to... The Gareth Edwards Godzilla movie because it's a direct it's, well, sequel. Well, I guess the Kong, the Kong movie that came out a couple years ago, is mm-hmm. also part of this string mm-hmm. of films coming from Legacy Pictures. I want to say, yes. and yeah. well, so wait a minute, wait, is Kong going to show up in? This well, new I think Godzilla so. So, movie? like Kong Not- Skull Island is part of this shared universe with the Gareth Edwards 2014 Godzilla movie, okay? Which I saw opening uh-huh. weekend. And I love Godzilla, but I did not... I was kind of repulsed by that Gareth Edwards movie. That was not Godzilla. That was the Zillow Beast. That was... Okay. Am I right? No, that was, no, that was Godzilla. Godzilla. That was the classic right. Godzilla screen. All right, listen. What I was saying last week ah! was I did not recognize the fact that the upcoming Godzilla King of Monsters movie is part of this same cinematic franchise that actually was kicked off in 2014 with Gareth Edwards' Godzilla movie. Several people told me about this. Billy Mack was on the show, and he's like, hey, there's a Godzilla movie coming out this summer. He should have corrected me right away. Now, see, that's what happens when Jason's not here. I start just spouting off all this kind of crazy stuff because I want to be just like Jason. Mm. <laughs> the saga starts with Obi-Wan Kenobi and Qui-Gon Jinn. Those guys were Jedi's with lightsabers and hair extensions. Anakin's a little boy, but someday he will destroy the Jedi Knights and Galactic fights with ships and battle droids. But he knew R2-D2 on Naboo. Luke and Leia, Ben and Yoda, Jabba, Chewie, Han and Boba, Ewok, Jawas and the Gungans. And that guy from Pulp Fiction, ships attacking, creatures biting, and Darth Maul with Kung Fu fighting. Good and evil, fate and mystery, and the coolest toys in retail history, episode one. Shut up, the movie has begun. Hi guys, I am Nick and I live in Sussex in the English countryside. And I'm Rav and I live in Hertfordshire in the English countryside. <laughs> uh, I've been a Patreon member, subscriber for only about three or four weeks now. Um, I've been on for a couple of days now. So for me, I guess I just wanted more content and it's great to get it first as well. And of course, you know, love all the extras. I think the access to the archive is absolutely fantastic. And where else could I be a 40-something Star Wars obsessive and not feel bad about it? And also, I think both Rav and I work in TV and we get a sense that, of course, 
making the podcast is quite time consuming for you guys a lot of work and we really appreciate that and just being able to give something back hopefully it makes life easier for you guys and ultimately can produce more and more content which is what we want yeah it's it's a really good thing to sign up and pay for the content and we really appreciate what you guys do keep it going you must contact me play back the entire message what message message after the message the emperor commands you to make contact with him it's a trick send no reply hey hey rebel force radio guys what's up it's your favorite canadian here matt k from winnipeg actually i've never met you so maybe i'm not your favorite anyways i just wanted to say philly matt i get you man we're in the same boat i find it really tough to speculate on episode nine i felt like i had a good grasp of where the creators drew the line for content and bringing back Palpatine felt like a very EU legendsy kind of thing. But now, I got no idea what they're going to do, man. So I'm just going to wait out the storm and wait till the movie comes out and listen to you guys all the time and see what you guys think. But my speculation's pretty much done. <laughs> so, anyways, keep the good work. Really enjoy the show. Uh, yeah, ciao. Well, way to stick your neck out there, pal. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you see, he hears the Palpatine cackle, and he's I'm like, done. I'm out. I'm done. No <laughs> I'm more. I'm not speculating anymore. Hey. I'm Canadian. Hey, you guys, I don't know. After hearing that Palpatine fella, I don't think we should be speculating anymore. <laughs> hey? Well, all right. Well, let's get into the speculating, because we've got a whole lot of information coming at us as by way of uh, Vanity Fair. So let's just get right into it. I have good news for you, my lord. That's good news. Come closer, I have good news. All right, the big Vanity Fair piece. Uh, I don't think it's on newsstands yet. The digital version is available at VanityFair.com. The uh, writer of the cover article is Lev Grossman. And uh, photography, of course, by the incomparable Annie Leibovitz. And uh, Annie's been treating us to these Star Wars uh, covers and these exclusives since 1999. Annie? Or I, get, I should say 1998, Annie? right? No, 1999. Better get yes. home, Annie. Yes. There's a storm coming. My, I can feel it in my belly. Annie! <laughs> Annie! <laughs> I, have, I have every Vanity Fair special Star Wars edition. I've got the the floppies. I've got the actual copies of the magazines here. Um, And it's a big treat because uh, Annie Leibovitz is uh, obviously an incredible photographer, photojournalist. And so I'm always very curious as to what the initial uh, big story, official story to... uh, to hit in promotion of these films is going to be. So in this case, it comes by way of, as I said, Lev Grossman. And I went ahead and I, I, I skimmed through the article and, and I pulled some quotes and some uh, pieces of it that I thought, well, this would be good for, uh, for conversation. The whole thing can be read again on vanityfair.com. We'll get into the photos, but I wanted to get into some of the reveals here um, nothing crazy, nothing uh, earth shattering, um, but some of the editorializing that that happens in the article, I really wanted to I wanted to get your take. 
Um, here's one that I thought was interesting. It says that the, the feather haired godling Luke suffered the trauma of having a Padawan go bad on his watch. Of course, they're summarizing uh, where we left off our characters in episode eight. Uh, it's an echo of what happened to his old mentor, Obi-Wan, with Anakin Skywalker, who became Darth Vader, but where Obi-Wan made peace with it. Waiting serenely in the desert of Tatooine for the next chosen one to arrive, Luke's guilt curdled into shame. He hid himself away so that his chosen one, Rey, had to spend most of The Force Awakens searching for him, and then another whole movie convincing him, with the help of Yoda's Force Ghost, to keep the Jedi Order going at all. Star Wars arrived as an antidote to the disillusionment of the 70s. But now, in its middle age, Star Wars is grappling with disillusionment of its own. Is what we see, Jimmy Mack and Luke Skywalker, in Episode Eight, The Last Jedi, is it a metaphor for the Star Wars franchise itself at this crossroads of middle age? It's very meta. If that is the situation, then I have to say I am largely disappointed with that direction. And I think it's very clueless about what Star Wars is all about. Uh, why? You know, um, Game of Thrones. Okay? Yeah, that's right. I'm going there. Game of Thrones. Because now all of a sudden I know what I'm talking about. I discovered... The greatest way to eliminate fan anxiety. Don't start watching the show until its final episode. Make that your first episode. Because then you know where everything's heading and you don't freak out. It all makes sense. Don't you want your life to make sense? Listen, I, I, I did it with Game of Thrones this week and another series I never watched. Big Bang Theory. Never watched it, except when you guys would send us emails saying, hey, here's one for Star Wars and pop culture. And then, yeah, I would dip into that apartment with Sheldon and the gang in that non-working elevator. And that is basically all the information I took with me going into that finale. What a joyous occasion that was with Sheldon and (laughs) the gang. Okay. That's about as specific as I'm going to get about big, big theories. Johnny Galecki, okay? He's over there. Uh-huh. And that Kelly girl in the gang. And the elevator and Kelly the Cuckoo. elevator worked. Don't start watching the show until its final episode. That removes a lot of fan anxiety. And we are in the age. We are in the golden age of fan anxiety. I swear to God, I am rejoicing. When Bob Iger tells us the next Star Wars movie is not going to come out for another three years. Because I'm so tired of everyone freaking out about when the trailer is going to drop. God, am I tired of that? <laughs> I'm losing my mind because of the anxiety. Probably be, probably be during the Super Bowl. Stop it! <laughs> Stop it! I'm so tired of those discussions and all these scoops yeah. and the sources and oh god, maybe, the anxiety. Maybe, maybe San Diego Comic Con's oh. coming up, guys. Maybe they'll do something. Yeah, that was really more of a teaser, Jimmy Mac. When are we going to see the real full Sick trailer? I really don't want to. I really don't want to. And, and I'm real. curious about the red band Sick trailer. Can we get a red band or a green band? We are in the golden age of fan anxiety. 
And so I think it's so proper that Disney is pumping the brakes. They have this very expensive multi-million dollar theme park on both coasts. They want people to go there. They want them to buy their streaming service, watch The Mandalorian, which I think is going to be steeped in Star Wars nostalgia. I think Episode Nine, while not so steeped in Star Wars nostalgia, is going to give us representation of a lot of major themes that I think have gone by the wayside. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. I hope it provides the connective tissue to bring it all together. Let's let's get to the sources. So this article also reveals that sources close to the movie, Steve, mm-hmm. say that Rise of Skywalker will at long last bring to a climax the millennia-long conflict between the Jedi Order and its Dark Shadow, the Sith. So obviously, the First Order and the Resistance are going to come to a head. They're going to have their explosive final battle here. Um, but sources are saying that it goes deeper than that, that it's going to actually be framing the final showdown between the Jedi Order and the Sith. So when you hear that, you couple that with the fact that you've got Palpatine's cackle in the trailer, um, what, do you, what do you make of that in terms of the scope of the story that this is trying to tell, this seems to be moving beyond just the end of the Skywalker saga. We're talking about the end of a conflict that's been going on for millennia. Yeah, that's interesting because, well, I look just like our Canadian friend, my favorite Canadian. Um, mm-hmm. I, the minute you heard Palpatine cackle, to me, everything changes. Every speculation has to now change. But also, the whole crux of the story changes. You know, there's a, in this article, there was a quote, um, I've just, uh, just kind of perusing. It wasn't all over when the Ewoks sang. Obi Wan died in vain. Even Han and Leia split up. It's a little less of a fairy tale now. To me, that's kind of what that ends up doing with. Our beloved uh, original trilogy, you know, look, there are people who love what's been done, and that's great. But from a storytelling point, Luke's sacrifice, Luke Vader's sacrifice, the everything that went on in Return of the Jedi becomes kind of meaningless if Palpatine is back. But, but there is the opportunity to really do this in a super, you know, super great way with compelling storytelling and blowing our minds with, with more of, of just how powerful the force is and what can happen, you know, when the light side finally rises up to completely crush the dark side. And this whole thing comes to, I just hope it doesn't come to a philosophical end. I hope it doesn't become one of these things like, well, there are no Jedi. There are no Sith. We're just, we're just different shades of gray. We're Be- because mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that takes that ends up going down a road that I think is completely anti Lucasian, and um, you yeah. know the, there has to be good and there has to be evil and and hopefully what we'll be seeing is evil. And look, anytime we get to see evil snuffed out, I'm all for it. I, I I'm a sucker for the good guys win. Well, that's yeah. what Star Wars is all right. about. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, it doesn't need to well, be brought up to a contemporary level. 
Star Wars in 1977 was a callback mm. to the classic film serials of the 30s and the 40s. Don't want to take my word for it? Then let's go right to the man himself. Here's a clip of George Lucas describing how he pitched Star Wars to Alan Ladd Jr. from the documentary Laddie the Man Behind the Movies. This is basically Saturday matinee serials from the 30s. You know, it's Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers. It's a genre. But it's a genre that died. It died really pretty much in the 40s. You know, it was a very intense action-adventure kind of serial with a lot of fantasy involved in it. It wasn't a film about the 70s. The technology was, but the storytelling was rooted in the golden age of Hollywood. That's the root of Star Wars. And then to abandon that, to say, well... Contemporary fans need contemporary tone and contemporary theme. That's exactly right. In this same article, Kathleen Kennedy, you're skipping ahead a little bit, but I'm going to allow it because it dovetails perfectly into this quote from Kathleen Kennedy. She says, um, uh, but regardless of whether or not Star Wars has changed since 1977, the world around it has profoundly. There is a loss of innocence a sense of innocence that existed in the 1970s that I don't think to any extent exists today. I think that has to permeate the storytelling and the reaction to the stories and how they're set up. It has to feel differently because we're Star Wars in the 70s was a response to the loss of innocence of the 70s. Exactly. Exactly. She couldn't be more wrong in this case. She is way wrong. What Kathleen is is stating there, and she said this at Star Wars Celebration last month, that it's just so important for Star Wars to be rooted in the issues and morals and dilemmas of 2019 because the world is not what it was in 1977 when Star Wars was released, but Star Wars was the antithesis to what was happening in the mid 70s. Cinematically, it was all grit. It By was design. Yeah, it was something that kids. Could, that's why we loved it so much. Is because everything else out there was just dog crap, and so George Lucas brought back the classic cinema, and now that's all forgotten because comic books are now cinema. And, you know, I wish comic books were cinema back then, but the technology wasn't there. So George Lucas created something that worked well with the, the technology of the time that he developed and pushed forward and made the Marvel movies of today possible. All comes in, well, all the roots you know, are in but- that. And all the roots of Star Wars are in the cinema and storytelling from the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, the stuff George Lucas grew up with, and he wanted to bring that to younger audiences of the mid-70s. And as a kid of the mid-70s, I can attest that Star Wars was a breath of fresh freaking air compared to all the dog crap that we were being served. Well, I, I think that that's the point that she's trying to make, and for whatever reason, I, I think she's saying that we don't have that sense of a loss of innocence in 
in society today, but I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that kids are being forced to grow up a little bit faster. I think that you have such volatile conversations that, that go about and that turn hateful so quickly, you know, it, to the point that even if you, even if you're critical, and I don't mean like hateful, I just mean like critical of The Last Jedi, there's a contingency of fans that will just completely, absolutely turn on you and turn it into an attack on your character well, yeah. uh, that, you, that you don't like. And, and I think what Star Wars brought to the table in 1977, and, and Lucas has said as much, is, is a morality tale. This isn't, and you guys have said it over and over and over again, this is not science fiction. This is space opera. This is fantasy with a science fiction backdrop. And and the morals and the ideas are broad, big concepts of good and evil and right and wrong. And those are things that are eternal. Those are things that go that, that really don't change from generation to generation. The details may change, but there are things that just don't change that are present in Star Wars. That that is you you step up to do the right thing. That you when Luke throws himself off that gantry in Bespin, it's because he would rather die than turn evil. Even if this man is his father, he would rather die than give himself over to the dark side. That is that type of morality, that type of of, of stand, that type of heart is something that 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 is consistent, that is eternal, that, that everyone would look at and say, that's true. That's good-hearted. You know, Luke turning from his father saying, no, I'm not going to kill him, and I'm a Jedi like my father before me. Luke would rather die in that moment mm-hmm. on, on the Death Star 2 than go to the dark side. There's something, uh, there, there's something that, that transcends time and culture with that type of morality. And, and I'm sorry, Star Wars... Jim, and, and, and you've kind of said this, that Star Wars was not defined by the time in which it was released. Star Wars began to define the times. Star Wars spoke into the times and changed the times to an extent. It changed the, the, the face of pop culture, and then pop culture ends up changing the face uh, of, of the culture in a lot of ways. And so, so by allowing... Star Wars to be a reflection of the current time, I think you're missing kind of the point of what Star Wars was and how it was made. But um, I think Star Wars in the 70s was a throwback to the classic golden Mm -hmm. age of cinema. And I think that George Lucas not only did that, he did it with American Graffiti, he did it with Star Mm -hmm. Wars, and then he did it again with Indiana Indiana Jones, Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And Kathleen Kennedy should know this. Working with Steven Spielberg on that trilogy or uh, quadrilogy of films. It's, it's astonishing to me how that is not more... That should be something that's being talked about at Lucasfilm. How can we connect to what George Lucas was connecting with? Can we do it? That's the whole thing. Yeah. George Lucas was connecting with something that he actually experienced the guys in charge of star wars now i mean they're they're not of his well, peer group anymore kathleen kennedy is back not in 1990 back in ni- you know she's just not no back in 1997 uh george lucas was quoted as saying that 
uh, I decided there was no modern mythology. I wanted to take old myths mm-hmm. and put them into a in new George, format that young voice, people please. could relate to. Jason, that's what put oh. you on the map, Jason. <laughs> oh, that's Isn't that really good. Steve <laughs> agrees with me? Isn't it? I mean, I wait, I hear it. I hear it. Wait, it's like revving up. I decided there was no modern mythology. I wanted to take old myths and put them into a new format that young people could relate to. I sound like Jordan Peterson now all of a sudden. This is Golden Age swank. (laughs) Mythology always existed in unusual, unknown environments, so I chose space. So he's talking about taking these things, these big eternal questions that young people were not talking about, were not engaged with, they weren't. Mm -hmm. Uh, discovering, trying to discover the answers to, and put them into a new format that they could relate to. And so he just chose space. Space is, like you said, Steve, space is the backdrop for, he could have put it anywhere, but he put it into space. Oh, he had a passion. He had a passion for the Buck Rogers, the Flash Gordons. The comic books and all of that. But then to to throw it in the blender with... Samurai films from Japan and westerns and and spaghetti westerns coming out of Italy mm-hmm. with Clint Eastwood and all that. I mean, Lucas threw all of that stuff into the blender, mm-hmm. and it was amazing how he mixed it up and came up with Star Wars. And all of that stuff needs to be looked at. I think nowadays all they do is sit down, screen a couple of Kurosawa films, and look at some Ralph McQuarrie portfolio art and go, okay, we're good to go. But it needs a deeper dive. George Lucas himself took that deep dive. But now, and that's all the structure and the filmmaking of it, but I'm talking about just from a thematic standpoint. Because what that quote goes on to say from Kathleen Kennedy is um, she says that evil needs to feel and look very real. And what that means today may not be as black and white as it might have been in 1977, coming off a kind of World War II sensibility. And I feel like that's a misnomer of what was what they were coming off of was not a World War II sensibility. It was a Vietnam sensibility. The baby boomer age is is post-World War II, and that's what fueled, you know, that's where George Lucas comes from. That's what fueled a lot of the things that were happening in the 70s because all of those people that were working in Hollywood were aging out and retiring. And so young filmmakers like Lucas, Spielberg, Coppola, Scorsese, they all squeezed in the Palma. They were all able to squeeze in there and and make those films the way they wanted to make it and push the technology in an area where these old school guys couldn't understand that anymore. It was, but Jim, I'm talking about the culture from a, from a standpoint of what this what this movie got dropped into the midst of the culture of the day was was a was a culture that was still very fresh off of. The, the the mentality that came from the Vietnam War, the, the way the young people responded, the way that our society responded to that. There was – I mean, what do you hear in the in the documentary The Age of Empire and all this other stuff that goes on is that it was a very pessimistic yeah. time. Right. And, and, here yes. comes, and here comes this ray of hope that is Star Wars. Well, not yeah. only was it a pessimistic time, it was a time when there was a lot of gray area and George Lucas wanted to remind us that – there are very clear distinctions between good and evil. It was literally black and white. 
literally black and white. <laughs> he wanted to show that. Now, in his older age, um, he started talking about shades of gray, even prior to the uh, or just in the aftermath of the sale to Disney. Uh, George would talk publicly about the the sequel trilogy, and he it was mentioned many times that it was going to address this idea of Shades of Grey. Uh, Billy Joel wrote a great song on his last album called Shades of Grey, and the, and and you know Shades of Grey are all that I see. When you get older and you start looking back, you have this sort of moment when perhaps the lines, the battle lines that you draw, that you drew as a younger person are not quite as clear as they were uh, once uh, when you were younger. Um, so I think that's all legit. I think that that's that's a fair thing to say. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I don't think that it it, it changes where George's head was at the time that he was he was writing the original Star Wars. And I don't think that there's any shame in that. He was writing something in order to get young people of the day thinking of the bigger issues, the bigger right. topics. You um, know, Lucas was steeped in nostalgia in many ways, rolling off of American graffiti. He was looking at his own youth and and feeling very focused by that. And that spilled into Star Wars in the aspect that you're speaking of right now, Jason. We have so much uh, that this uh, article reveals in Vanity Fair, and it is certainly uh, unearthing a lot of these these issues that are at the, the the absolute core of this saga, and in particular this uh, ultimate uh, trilogy. Um, let's get into uh, some of the Carrie Fisher details. That's obviously a, a, a big talking point for the movie. Um, most likely this will be the last uh, footage, new footage that we see of uh, Carrie Fisher in any kind of uh, film or you know, broadcast of any kind. Um, but they, they tie it back to the title of the film. So the titular Skywalker of Rise of Skywalker. Uh, who could it be? Uh, one option is General Leia Organa, the former Princess Leia, Luke's sister, but Carrie Fisher, who plays her, passed away in 2016. It was a deeply painful loss for Abrams personally, but it also presented him with an impossible choice as a filmmaker. He needed Leia to tell the story, but Abrams didn't feel like a digital Carrie Fisher could do the job. There's a sidebar article that accompanies this that references... A universally panned digital cameo by Princess Leia in Rogue One. I don't remember it being universally panned, by the way. Mm -mm. Um, I, I remember people saying, wow, it didn't look quite as convincing as the Peter Cushing stuff, which was some sort of witchcraft. I'm convinced that they used to, to recreate Peter Cushing. Um, something that just went beyond CGI, um, whereas the Carrie cameo seemed a little bit more, yeah, this is a CGI moment. But I don't remember it being universally panned. Now, what, what, what bothers me, because of that, they say that Abrams didn't feel that a digital Carrie could do the job, and there was no way Lucasfilm was going to recast the role. So that leads me to wonder, though, would, would a guy like J.J. Abrams say, well, well, we need to recast. I mean, the, she's too, the character is too instrumental to the, 
to the story. We got to have the character of Leia um, because they're, they're, they're very deliberate in saying J.J. was coming down with no CG carry and Lucasfilm was coming down and no recasting. I thought that was interesting that those lines were drawn right there. I think we will discover down the road that Colin Trevorrow was let go because of one of these issues you're bringing to the forefront right now. I think Colin wanted to recast or he wanted to CG or something. I think Kerry played very heavily into the script he was developing. There's no question about that. Um, So J.J., Steve, goes in to talk about how and and what this, this big moment was where he realized... He says it's something strange happened. He remembered that there was some footage of Carrie left over from Force Awakens, scenes that had been changed or cut. Mm-hmm. He dug them up, and he started to write scenes around the old footage, fitting Leia's dialogue into new context, created the lighting to match the way Fisher had been lit. Blah blah blah. How does this differentiate from, uh? Ed Wood writing around a dead Bella Lugosi. Now, I'm not trying to be disrespectful no, here. That's a very fair, but what I'm trying to say is fair. that what was that movie? Plan Nine or Plan something nine like from that? Outer Space. Yeah. Right, right, right. He had a he had a he had a he, my 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 think my thinking is when did we get to the point that the actor playing the character was so important was more important than than the trajectory of the story that that actor has been hired to help uh, bring to life. I Mm -hmm. I don't want to keep uh, harping on this. I was definitely one that was a big fan of the idea of recasting Mm it. Um, I I even threw out uh, Kate Mulgrew. Yeah, yeah. Potential. And uh, and people were on board with that, too. Um, Not everyone. Some people were. But I mean, some people were just they thought that this was sacrilegious. But I mean, hey, guess what? If you're going to toe this line, you're never going to get Princess Leia in any kind of visual medium. This is Star Wars and it covers 40 years, four decades, man. This is unprecedented. I think that there, there's the human element of, you know, to to J.J. Abrams, Carrie Fisher isn't just yes. an actress who played a role. I mean, there there are real feelings and real people sure. involved in this, yes. and I and I yes. think that plays into the situation a little bit. What I don't understand, and, and it's and it's one of the things that that as a as, as a filmmaking company lucasfilm hasn't done i don't think really well on the silver screen since the disney buyout is you you perfected you you started to perfect this technology in rogue one with the tarkin stuff um the the carrie fisher princess leia was a little bit less uh effective as you said jason why not you've got time you know they've had all this time spend it perfecting this so that you can have her where you may need her 
to do some things differently. Uh, get a voice double to do what you need to do. You know, use some effective wide shots and some clever editing and stuff. I, here's the thing. I honestly think that doing it the way they're doing it, because they are doing some fancy, you know, editing, digitally editing to her into shots where she's not and that sort of thing. And as JJ says, making, you know, changing the context of her original dialogue and stuff. Uh, it could end up being one of those moments of of sheer movie magic where we just look and say, that's amazing that they were able to pull that off, you know? And, and it, one of those things that just kind of spark our imagination, which from a, from a movie-making standpoint, Star Wars has done since 1977. It has, it has pushed the envelope in that way. But I, I think there's some personal... I, I do think there's a lot of personal stuff. And, and Carrie has become sainted in, in, yep. in Star Wars fandom, you know? And, and that's a whole other discussion of... You know, whether or not she should be or shouldn't be, you know, mm-hmm. did the princess need rescuing? Of course she did. Um, that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, I, I think it just comes down to just personal, like, we want to do this. I think they, I think their heart is really to honor Carrie Fisher. I think so, thing. too. I, I definitely think so. But now, I does think the story, they're... does the story suffer because of that? I think that's one of those things we have to wait and see. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's my concern. That's my concern. Um, here we go. A couple more of these. Uh, we're running a little bit long. Um, we're obviously going to have a lot more to say about this uh, into next week's show. Uh, there's just so much to get through in this Vanity Fair uh, cover piece and the sidebars. Um, we do have confirmation uh, after the the teaser trailer. Jim, I remember you, me, Bill, we were in the hotel talking about, was that, was that the Knights of Ren that we saw there? We saw, uh, Kylo doing this incredible clothesline job with the lightsaber on one of the Knights of Ren. Well, sources at Disney, your one of your favorite sources, quote sources, uh, confirm that, uh, the Knights of Ren will finally arrive in Skywalker. And in fact, we even see any Leibowitz photos, uh, set photos of the Knights of Ren. So the Knights of Ren are coming back, but I'm just curious, do you think that what we saw in the Force vision of Rey was a premonition of something that is yet to come that we will see in Episode Nine, or was it a flashback? Mm. Force back, flashback. I never liked the yeah. Force back label that was attached to that whole sequence with Ray that we saw in the force awakens. I thought some of that was a premonition of the future, especially the Knights of Ren stuff. And so I think, mm. Oh, so you, you thought the Knights of Ren were in Ray's future as opposed to I in did. Ray's past. I absolutely okay. did. Yes. Hmm. And I think that's going to come into play in Ep nine. I, I really do. And I, I'm happy to see in this vanity fair article that we do see the Knights of Ren, strict confirmation that they are going to be featured in this film and we actually get a photo of them in broad daylight we gotta see these cats one of them looks a lot like jj abrams with uh, shades on hey somebody did point out to me (laughs) our friend uh, barry Harmon pointed out to me one of the knights of wren is holding a staff that you can see featured in drayden voss's collection in solo a star wars story so the the, the staff with sort of a no yeah kidding. kind of really? it's sort of a half a sphere uh cut out on top of this big staff you know classic star wars staff 
a lot of these guys carry around staffs in Star Wars. I think that's mm. something we should incorporate into, you know, modern culture. We should carry staffs around more often. It would probably, um, it'd probably be uh, interesting conversation pieces. There are cool photos in this Vanity Fair article that I, I you know. Oh, they're great, great they're photos. Great, great, great picture. Carrie Russell in her full bounty hunter garb. She looks like she's yeah. wearing like a bicyclist. You know, the, where they're riding up bikes and they're on those speed tracks and they have those helmets that kind of flare off in the back. Mm. Kind of looks like that. I, I don't know. Classic Star Wars bounty hunter design. Mm-hmm. Other information revealed includes... The new desert planet, it's not Tatooine, it's not Jakku, it's not Jeddah. It's a new planet called Pasana. I thought at first it said Pasadena, but no, it's Pasana, as in pass on what you've learned, Pasana. I don't know. And uh, that's where the natives of the planet are known as the Aki Aki. I think I ordered that once at a seafood restaurant, Aki Aki. Um, <laughs> Richard E. Grant, a lot of speculation uh, was directed toward his character. Is he going to play a young Palpatine? Is he going to play Grand Admiral Thrawn? I didn't think so. He's playing the First Order's Allegiant General Pride. And uh, there's a picture of him on the bridge of Kylo Ren's Star Destroyer with General Hux. The article also reveals C-3PO does something that we would not expect him to do in this film. Um, Finn and the new character played by Naomi Aki, Janna, ride horse-like beasts called Orbax. Orbax. And uh, what? Um, the Rise of Skywalker picks up about a year after the end of The Last Jedi. Um, there will be a scene or maybe a series of scenes with Carrie Fisher and Billy Lord, who plays Lieutenant Connick's, which, uh, should be pretty interesting. Here's a, here's something, Steve, I, I, I want to throw this at okay. you because, uh, this, this jumped out at me as I was reading the article, they were talking about how the star Wars darkness in the star Wars movies, uh, comes from fear. Uh, we hear Yoda talk about it. Uh, fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. Clearly, Anakin Skywalker's fear was losing his mother and then losing his wife. Um, but we've got the, the, the big bad here in uh, the sequel trilogy of Kylo Ren. And uh, the, the writer says that, you know, operatically, he is as emo as Vader is stoic. What's his... What's Kylo Ren's big fear? Uh, this writer claims that it's not been revealed yet. You know, I don't think it has, really. I, I think that, if anything, his fear began as a child, and this is pure speculation on my part, but his fear began mm-hmm. as a child being the son of Han Solo, the son of Leia, the nephew of Luke Skywalker, of not being able to live up to that. I think his, I think he feared what that meant for him um, as he grew. to I can't live up to the legend that my family is. And then mm. all you have to do mm-hmm. is kind of speak into that and whisper into that and say, let me give you a way you can. Because not only are your, is your family these people, but your grandfather is Darth Vader. And, and who's more yeah. powerful than Anakin Skywalker? And I think that that fear then led to you know, his desire for power 
so that he could prove himself in all of these things. And, um, and, and that fear led to anger. Anger led to hate, and hate has led to his own internal suffering, you know, just as Yoda said it would. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so if, if anything, that'd be, my, that'd be what I speculate would be his fear. It's just the fear of not living up to his his parentage. One last thing here before we before we wrap up, they're 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 talking about the connection, uh, Jim here between Kylo and Ray. We obviously saw it very clearly in Episode Eight with the um, what they called it Force Time instead of Face Time. You know the the, the communion that they had. Um, and the, the writer here is is not coming out and, and making any conclusion, but just saying that um, the force connection that sources close to the movie, this is a, a recurring theme here, um, he states sources close to the movie uh, claim that the force connection between the two will will turn out to be even deeper than we thought. They're uniquely suited to understand each other, but at the same time, they are in every way each other's inverse, down to Kylo's perverse rejection of his family, which is the one thing that Ray craves the most. So I actually started thinking, I as, as crazy as this sounds, clone, I started thinking twin, I started thinking all of these things. Do you think that the that the book is already closed on those possibilities that it's not going to be something quite so obvious but this what could this deep deep force connection be She's the daughter of Luke Skywalker or Han Solo a family connection no matter what it is no matter what happened in the last Jedi that's going to be revealed as some sort of lie or manipulation or something Kylo Ren, he doesn't know who he is. There's a few things in this Vanity Fair article, which, which I dispute, okay, Ooh. that comes from the writer. Number one, it's not like Kylo constantly wants to have this perverse rejection of his family. When we get introduced to Kylo Ren, he is worshiping Darth Vader, his grandfather. We know that is in place when it comes to Kylo Ren. So... That presents the whole problem with Kylo Ren. So he can't achieve Darth Vader. So he tries to reject his past. That's the inconsistency with Kylo Ren. What makes Kylo Ren act in fear? Indecision. He doesn't know who the hell he is. He never did. Kylo Ren is the most indecisive person in Star Wars. Revere the past. Kill the past. Who are you? Mm. And it all happens within the wink of an eyelash. So I think it's going to be revealed that Rey does have something to do with the Skywalker lineage. She is going to be proven as a pure-blood Skywalker, regardless of uh, what happened in The Last Jedi. The whole idea that she's nobody from nowhere, has nothing to do with the story, that's going to be proven wrong. Ryan Johnson's already tap dancing around it. This is the second article, this Vanity Fair article, where he repeats the exact same thing we heard him say previously. I'm excited to see what they do. I can't wait. Well, no, you know what's going to happen, Ryan. It's already, <laughs> it says in the article that J.J. Abrams had a conference with Ryan Johnson. 
and George Lucas and Lawrence Kasdan. And that's when they devised the way this is going to be wrapped up. And I also know in this article, Kathleen Kennedy says the finale has been in place since the beginning. That's BS. That's so not true. It was settled with Kasdan, Abrams, Lucas, and Johnson. They pulled it all together, and Chris Terrio, too. This article contradicts itself. It's just like Bob Iger saying everything's going on a hiatus, and Kathleen Kennedy saying Ryan Johnson has a trilogy. Bob Iger says Benioff and Weiss. And also the Vanity Fair article is where they say trilogy, too, when it comes to Benioff and Weiss. Yes, yes. The Vanity Fair article specifically says trilogy. But there are things in this Vanity Fair article that I do dispute. And one of them is the fact that Kylo Ren has this perverse reaction toward his family. You know, that whole destroy the past thing. I I, I think that's BS because in the first movie, when we're introduced to Kylo, he is worshiping his grandfather, Darth Vader. Well, there's definitely a dichotomy in the character there. Yes. Because... And the, and, the, and the writer says, you know, he's fixated on the past on the one hand. He made a shrine to his own grandfather. But at the same time, the past torments him. Let the past die. He tells Ray, kill it if you have to. It's the only way to become what you were meant to be. So, you know, in, in some ways, burning the bridge of the past is a way to, for him to claim his destiny, which at that time he sees it as picking up the mantle of... Of Darth Vader, clearly a manipulation. I would, I would assume, a manipulation by Snoke. Um, but uh, no, there's there's so much to unpack here. A lot more to this Vanity Fair, including uh, f- photos and um, still more details within the uh, depths of all the uh, the uh, the stories, the main featured story. I don't think this is on newsstands yet, right? Is it on? I think it was only released digitally initially here. Who, who picks up magazines anymore? Yeah, All that matters yeah, is it's, a, it's right. online, right, Steve? I mean, uh, yeah. it's, it's not running out to the newsstand hey. well i am because i want to i want to add yes, it to my yes he's had everyone since 99 come on yeah. um <laughs> look you laugh you laugh no at me? i'm just saying i'm i've got your back over here there's the whole millennium falcon cockpit shot with with yeah. uh with indiana poe and and mm-hmm. billy d in his honestly it looks like from the captain kirk starter set fashion line that yellow shirt but guys, it well, that's these, a callback to the Donald Glover and Jason. Yeah, I understand. Is repulsed by that. Uh, me too. I, I'm totally. And I agree. And I agree it. with Jason. But here's what here's what's so funny about this shot. Look at Billy D's face and tell me if he doesn't feel like he's in the photo booth again with the RFR crew. Oh no no no! Look no, at that he face was, he's making. He, he was doing better acting when he was there in front of the cameras with Rebel it's, Force Radio. Trust me, Chewy. We we, we we tested Billy D's limits as an actor. Chewy, yeah, I, I, Chewy might as well be holding up Puppet Lando over his head or something. <laughs> oh, we gotta we have to make that happen. Settle down. Uh, that, that'll be our show art for this week. But so you don't like the yellow? He does shirt. look. He does look. He does look disturbed I mean, by what's going on like, around him. It looks him. like he's got to go to the bathroom or something, guys. It's not. It is not the coolest we've seen. Billy Can I just? Well, say, I gotta I'm, tell you, I'm I'm thrown by the fact that they put a piece on him. Oh yeah, he's got his gun down there. Yeah. No, I'm talking about a hair piece. Oh, that piece. Oh, 
Well, looking, yeah, they did that. Um, talk about William Shatner. That is true, Jason. They did that, but they did not dye his mustache black, which is something I can't understand. Well, the he's got to look aged. Billy D is such like a trademark signature of him, and it's right. really very gray. I can't believe they didn't dye it in. I, it's like Caesar Romero as the Joker kind of gray. <laughs> it all just blends in. The salt and pepper look. I can't do it, Billy. Oh, where's yeah. Billy D? I mean, well, where's I, Billy Mack? Oh, Billy Mac, I'll wake him up. Tell but so, okay, so the shirt, though. I do have to say I've seen a lot of pushback on social media about Billy D wearing this yellow shirt. And I'm surprised because Jason was really the first guy I heard taking that stance. And he does look like Kirk, though, doesn't he? It's I mean, a, that looks it's like a something Star Captain Trek shirt. Kirk would yeah. wear. He is... He is yeah. definitely that's more Captain Kirk than Donald Glover, I think. That's yeah. he's that's more a tribute to the Shad. <laughs> but I think I yeah. think Jason's point with this whole thing has been that this shirt is 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 an attempt, this look is an attempt to reference the new Star Wars through Solo rather than be its own thing. Solo was, you know, of course had its references back to the original trilogy, and this should be furthering that, not like, hey, this is that guy Donald Glover was playing, you know. This is Billy D. Yeah, what a what a, what a disgrace! Yeah. What a disgrace! Oh, I mean, I'm not going to go. <laughs> to make I'm this. not going to go to disgrace. <laughs> not <laughs> disgrace level. <laughs> I will. I think it's a disgrace that you have the legendary Billy D. Williams, and they're like, "Hey, what we really want to do is we want to use Billy D. to harken back to the good old days of of of, of Donald Glover <laughs> instead Donald, of the other way around." Donald Glover. I, I can't hear myself yeah. in my headphones. Or I would... By the way, do you notice that Dio is peeking around? Yes. Uh, yeah. Pose yeah. there. And yeah. he's singing Holy Diver. Holy Diver. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what about the picture of Mark Hamill, though? Oh. I, I mean, what, what do we make of this photo? He's standing. Is this a new photo? It is. It, this is a new photo taken by Annie Leibovitz on the set of Episode 9. Now, it's not necessarily a still shot from the film Mark standing there with R2 Mark fully in the flesh standing there with R2 and flames around him could this be a force ghost um, no where has R2 been in anything we've seen of Rise of Skywalker at this point all the stuff we saw in Chicago no R2 uh, now we see him here with Luke what's up with R2 he's definitely this not with is the flashback this is this is a flashback to the well, but he's gray, Luke. No, this he's doesn't make sense. You're right. You're right. This is not dark and lovely, Luke. This is <laughs> dark and lovely. This is Luke. old hermit, yeah. Luke. Um, yes. almost as if he's having to relive the raid on the Jedi Temple. Uh, good point, Jimmy Mac. But, you know, and boy, do they make no reference to it at all in the article or in the captions mm-hmm. of the photos. Nope. It's uh, they just, just say it's Mark Hamill as Luke with R two D two. It's such a weird, yep. you know, it's such a weird caption on the photo from the ashes. Mark Hamill is Luke with R two D two. Speculation is rampant about who will rise in yeah. quotes rise yeah. as the Skywalker of the movie's <laughs> title and how that choice. This, here's the part. It almost makes me want to puke. And how that choice will reflect the way the world has changed since Star Wars debuted in 1977. What are you saying with a statement like that on a caption of this photo? How the world yeah, has I, changed I, since Star Wars debuted in 1977. I'm telling you, Star Wars does not 
have its roots in the year 1977. It has its roots in the 30s and the 40s and the classic era of Hollywood cinema. Saturday matinee serials from the 30s. You know, it's Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers. It's a genre. And that's what George Lucas was presenting us as filmgoers in the 70s. And the people who know this are filmgoers from the 70s, like myself, who know exactly what it was like to be served that up at that time, compared to all the other pop culture that was surrounding us. All the downer stuff, all the disaster stuff, all the post-Watergate, post-Vietnam garbage that we had to consume as children. When Star Wars came around, it was a breath of fresh air. Everything else was apocalyptic. Well, that's a pretty it, cool picture of Luke and R2, guys. <laughs> uh, well, see, Steve always brings it back down. He brings me back down. He does. Well, that's going to sadly bring this part of our discussion of this incredible Vanity Fair display of photos and details from the set. We will have more of this next week. There's so much, like I said, to unpack with all of this, and um, we'll get to... I don't even want to say all of it. We'll get to a lot more of it next week on the show. Uh, What an incredible episode what an incredible time to have our good pal steve glosson back on the show steve guys thank you so much i had a blast it was so good to be with you guys again let's not wait so long next time definitely not definitely not you're always welcome we missed you in chicago of course we understand newlywed all of that stuff but uh hopefully we'll find some excuse i don't know like galaxy's edge maybe i'm there I'm there. RFR meetup. Listen, you, me, Billy Mack, Swank, Paul Bateman, we're going to cosplay as the Knights of Ren. We're going to overrun the place. (laughs) It's going to be hilarious. (laughs) I like that idea. I like that idea a lot. Well, anyway, great to have you, Steve, of course. I want to give a shout out to our uh, Patreon supporters. If you'd like to uh, become a member of the uh, Patreon group uh, and never miss an episode of bonus content of uh, Rebel Force Radio, like uh, Rush Hour, uh, the RFR Rewind, Q&A, uh, and all kinds of great things happening, go to patreon.com slash Radio. That's patreon.com slash Radio. You can check out all the benefits that come with supporting our show. Um, also... We'd love to have you involved and engaged in our conversations here, and there's two great ways to do it. You can email us, show at rebelforceradio.com. That's show at rebelforceradio.com, or leave us a voicemail, voicemail line 708-320-1RFR. That's 708-320-1737. You can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash rebelforceradio. Uh, our website, rebelforceradio, just add the .com. You'll go right there. And uh, we've even got T-shirts. We've got merch. So if it's been a while since you've checked it out, go to rebelforceradio.com. 
and see what uh, shirts are uh, available for you to say it loud, say it proud. Uh, iTunes is still one of the best places to review and consume your favorite podcasts. Uh, We'd love to have you subscribe. We would love to have you review. Uh, As far as those reviews go, though, just one rule, please. Make them. Go ahead, Steve. Make them good. Yeah. And you can find Rebel Force Radio streaming online at WGNplus.com. Don't forget our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Rebel Force Radio. I mean, we're talking about three, four, five different uh, pieces a week uh, being uh, added to that. We've got 13 years of Star Wars podcasting that's being archived and put in there, including as we build up to... The return of Star Wars The Clone Wars on Disney Plus this fall. You can check out newly polished episodes of The Clone Wars Roundtables and Clone Wars Declassified. So as you're reliving The Clone Wars, you can relive our reactions to them as uh, as you binge and get ready for the return of that great animated series. Uh, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, anywhere you can find podcasts, you can find us here at Rebel Force Radio. So that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, We'll we'll be back next week for sure. And lots more from the set of Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker, courtesy of Vanity Fair. We'll see you next time. For Rebel Force Radio, I'm Jason. I'm Jimmy Mack, and I'm here with my very good friend, And his name is from Geek Out Loud. Oh, I'm Steve. I'm sorry. Wow. And the Golivers. I forgot I get to do this. And I'm Steve Glossett. <laughs> and remember, the boss will be with you always. I thought you had a stroke there or something. Steve. I'm sorry. I was like, what is he doing? <laughs> And I'm Steve. (laughs) Well, he was the producer of a very Brady sequel.